remain standing for a bit longer, uh, please do so. But either way, I would invite you to take a Bible and turn to the book of 1 Timothy. If you'd like to use a Bible from the pew, you could grab that and feel free to use that. If you do, turn to page 991. That will take you to 1 Timothy. Otherwise, 1 Timothy, I want to read the first two verses of this passage this morning as we begin a study in the book of 1 Timothy. These are God's words for us today. Here's what God says. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. You may be seated. Father, there's no word like your word. Every word of yours is true. And we're grateful that it's not just an old rusty truth. It's a living and active truth. And so our prayer is that while we consider this portion of scripture that we've just read, that you would be at work in our midst. You would show us wonderful things about Jesus from the book of 1 Timothy. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, our plan is to begin uh, this study in 1 Timothy. Uh, there's about, as I estimate it, 10 units that comprise this book of 1 Timothy. And I estimate that that will take us, I don't know, 20 to 25 Sundays to make our way from, from start to finish in this book. And uh, this morning I thought we would read the first two verses and glean some things from these first two verses to help us to kind of introduce ourselves to, if you would, even get a bit of a preview about this Precious book. Two things I want us to mull over by way of just trying to put some organization to it. First of all, we will say a couple of things about the cast or the characters or the people of First Timothy. And then, and then we'll say something about the, the cause or the concerns or the purpose of First Timothy. We'll probably say a bit more about that point, but let's first of all consider just, we've been introduced to them in a sense, but let's, let's look more about these people. This is a letter from the Apostle Paul to Timothy. As I estimated, the Apostle, by this point, the Apostle Paul uh, has known Timothy for about 15 years. In Paul's first missionary journey, one of the towns he went to was the town of Lystra. And there in the town of Lystra, as he did in every town, he preached about the Lord Jesus Christ. And people came and turned to the Lord Jesus Christ. And an outgrowth of that gospel preaching was that churches were started. A church was started in the town of Lystra. Somewhere in that context, Timothy is from Lystra. And Timothy becomes a part of that church. It's quite possible that 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 it was Paul himself 
um, who spoke the words of the gospel to, to Timothy. Or Paul spoke them to somebody else who then spoke them to Timothy. But, but any, either way, directly or indirectly. Uh, now, on Paul's second missionary journey, he goes back through the town of Lystra before heading out in other directions, and he collects Timothy and takes him with him on this, what we know is his second missionary journey. So this is the Timothy that we're talking about. A Timothy that Paul says is his true child, really the imagery of of a genuine child in the faith. In other words, there's a, a spiritual lineage here. When he describes him as his true child or genuine child, first of all, he's expressing the deep affection he has for this young man. These are, these are terms of endearment. These are the father's affections for his, his dear son, his true son, his genuine son. So really, I thought it was a good movie. Diane said it was depressing, but I like depressing movies. But really interesting movie this past week called Dreaming Wild. And uh, it did what so few movies today do. It portrayed fathers in a wonderful light. It was a, the dear, loving affection of a father for his, his two sons. So, but Paul is expressing a bit of that deep affection for, for Timothy. But I think it also reflects, it says, my true or genuine son in the faith. It, it's talking about their, their commonality, uh, that there's a familial likeness uh, between uh, the son and the father, between Timothy and uh, his old man in the faith, the apostle Paul. Paul would express that in this way in Second uh, Timothy chapter 3, verse 10, speaking again to Timothy, but only in a separate book. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that have happened to me. The apple hadn't fallen far from the tree. He's a chip off the old block in in wonderful, good, Christ-like ways. Where Paul would identify Timothy not as his true or genuine son in the faith, but he would describe him as his brother or his co-workers, like in Second First Thessalonians chapter three, verse two. That the, the shared commitments that they had uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ and to the mission uh, that the Lord Jesus Christ had given them. So there is paternal and fraternal um, relationship between Paul and Timothy. And, and Timothy here is now at the behest of Paul. He is in the town of Ephesus, Ephesus working with the church there the gathered saints at the town of Ephesus, a town that Paul had visited, a town that Paul is no longer at, but he dispatches Timothy to be, if you would, a special apostolic delegate or envoy to do pastoral kind of work uh, with the church at Ephesus. The other character, the most obvious character, is, is Paul. 
We're told here that Paul was an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God. In other words, Paul's apostolic status was not one of self-selection. He didn't uh, deputize himself as a, an apostle. It is not self-designated. He didn't wake up one morning feeling like an apostle and, and, and based upon his feelings, tagged himself that way. No, this was not by any sort of human appointment. This was by God's appointment. And, and, and the, the authority that Paul derived, the, the, the authority that Paul has as an apostle is a derived authority from the Lord. He is a man under orders. Paul, uh, Carl has dealt with this in the last couple of weeks from Acts 26, but uh, in Acts 26, Paul tells a bit of his story as to what's, what's he about? What's, what does God have for him? Where he tells in Acts 26 that he was an apostle to the Gentiles. He was sent to the Gentiles we're told, he says, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, that they may turn from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified in, uh, by faith in God. Now, most of us here are probably ethnically Gentiles. So in that sense, you and I share a heritage and ancestry that God dispatched this guy named Paul to be a missionary to Gentiles. And if we followed the family tree, somewhere along that family tree, we would have to thank God for the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was a great leader. He identified himself as one untimely born. In other words, he didn't have his apostolic credentials the way that the other apostles did. He, he called himself one untimely born. Uh, he, nevertheless, he qualified in that the Lord himself in his resurrected state appeared to them, to him, and gave him his credentials as an apostle. Paul wrote 13 letters in the New Testament. Timothy, uh, first and second Timothy and Titus are among those 13 letters and yet we commonly call those the pastoral letters. They are, they are certainly for the church as the other letters are, but they were written particularly to Timothy and Titus who were special apostolic delegates or uh, uh, envoys to, to do work in the town of Ephesus with Timothy and the town of Crete with uh, Titus. And of course, a, 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 a character not specifically listed is the, is the Ephesians. Uh, Paul is writing a letter to Timothy while he is ministering and serving in the book, uh, in, in the town of Ephesus. The, the gathering of believers who comprise the church at Ephesus while, while this letter is not addressed to them, this letter is for them. Thus, 
by the way the Spirit of God works. This letter is not an old, outdated, dead letter. It's a living letter. And so it is for us as a church, even today. Now, let me spend a bit more time developing the cause or the concerns or the purpose of 1 Timothy. He says there at the end of verse 2, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what's at stake in the occasion of this letter. People like you and I having these blessings known as grace and mercy and peace. That that these things are experienced as we're told from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. These these things are not self-generated. These things flow to God's people from God the Father through His Son by His Spirit or shorthand, these things come to us in Christ Jesus. Grace. One way that we could describe the sweetness of grace, it it is the unearned, undeserved forgiveness and empowerment by God. It is His favor. You and I cannot live without God's favor. Mercy, one way that we could describe mercy is it, 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 it is his unmerited compassion and care. It is his loving kindness. You and I cannot live without either God's favor or God's loving kindness. Peace. We could describe peace as the unending tranquility and stability for our lives. An inner wholeness from the Lord. You and I cannot live without God's favor, without God's loving kindness, and without his sense of wholeness. Apart from him giving us these blessings, we are an unraveled and unraveling people. We are a hot mess. And so Paul goes to great pains to explain to Timothy and thus, thus benefit the church at Ephesus 
as to the deep things that are at stake so that people like you and I could figure out how these things flow to us from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit, that the things that you and I need to make it through the day, the things that you and I need to finish this new year, what we need more than anything else is God's grace and God's mercy and God's peace. Now, first of all, let me then back up. And let me, kind of, let me kind of go off over here for a second and see if I could then not get my own self lost and make my way back to uh, these things about grace and mercy and peace. What I want to do is now preview or scan the contents of 1 Timothy to give to us the, 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 the burden of Paul's heart for Timothy as he, as he pastors or shepherds or leads as his delegate, this local flock there in the town of Ephesus. There's a lot at stake What's at stake is God's people experiencing, walking in, receiving the grace and the mercy and the peace of God. I alluded to this a while ago, and that is Paul had actually been to this church uh, at at Ephesus. Um, And um, in fact, we're told in Acts 19 that he stayed there at least two years teaching them. That, that, was, that was not, I don't think, a normal strategy for Paul. I, I don't know how long he stayed in a lot of these towns, but this seems to be a little bit longer of a town. Maybe there was just more stuff to unpack and to, and, and to, and to deal with. But after this extended visit, this is some 15 uh, years or so, less than 15 years, um, uh, as he was coming back through the area. He didn't quite make it to Ephesus, but he made it to this town called Miletus, but it was close enough. And so there in Miletus, he sent a word to the elders, the church leaders at Ephesus, and said, meet me here in Miletus. I got to talk to you guys. And Acts chapter 20 is a bit of the conversation that, that Paul had with the elders from Ephesus as they met in the town of Miletus. Here's what he says. Here's at least some of the things he said. Acts 20 Listen to verses 28 through 30. He says to the elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. We already get a hint, therefore, as to what we're going to bump into when we open the book of 1 Timothy further. This is a burden of Paul's heart. Paul's burden that, that false teachers, whom he likens as fierce wolves, will draw disciples away. The fierce Wolves, these false teachers will hold out alternative sources for how one can experience grace and mercy and peace. 
Paul knows that these desperately needed qualities are only found in Jesus. And so if someone comes and leads the disciples away from Jesus to themselves, he knows that those other dudes do not have what they need, that they, they do not, they are vaporous, they are empty, they are bankrupt, they do not have grace and mercy and peace their own selves, let alone able to impart it. These things only come from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And so if we, if we aspire and we, we want these things, then we must receive these things by receiving the benefactor who provides us these things. And if, but if someone suggests an alternative benefactor, saying you get just about the same thing, that's the burden. That's why Paul would write this letter to Timothy. That's why Paul would send Timothy. First Timothy is one of the three pastoral letters. They, they, they were written uh, to Timothy and to Titus uh, it, to, to help them to carry out their responsibilities as stewards of God's household. God's household. What's that? That's just another name for a local church, a local gathering of believers um, are, are what could be known as God's household. In fact, 1 Timothy chapter 3, so we'll get there more, in more depth uh, when we get to chapter 3, but, but Paul says this, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how uh, one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. You see, these, these blessings, grace and mercy and peace, they stem from the Father through the Son in the Spirit, and yet they funnel into, they flow into the church. As God gathers a people unto himself called his household, he floods his people as they, as they look to him, as they trust in him, as they worship him, as they serve him, that, that, that God floods their hearts with all that they need in terms of these qualities of grace and mercy and peace. So local churches are God's households. They, they as such, they are to operate according to the, the pattern established by the head of the house. Know who the head of this house is. And don't say Joe, Carl, or Freddie. You see, the scripture paints churches as households, which 
is rich. Because among other things, it, it portrays us as a family. A family living together. A family that is to live together according to God's good household plans. That the owner and the head of the house establishes the household blueprints or plans. That, 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 and, and, and what that means as Timothy plays itself out, and what that means that as grace and mercy and peace are at stake is that certain doctrines must not be taught. Because those doctrines are false. And false doctrines do not provide grace and mercy and peace. Instead, other doctrines must be taught and they must be embraced. And those good doctrines that must be taught and must be embraced are to give rise to a, a certain kind of a, a, a way of living and not just any kind of uh, of made up my own self kind of living, a kind of living that is in accordance with the, the precious doctrines that God has established for his church and for his people. Much of the book of 1 Timothy will address false teachers and false teaching. Now, why would he be so feisty about stuff like that? Why can't you just live and let live? Well, you can live and let live in that sense. But if your passion, if your interest is to see hearts and lives affected by God's grace and by God's mercy, and by God's peace, then we must understand those don't come from nowhere. Those flow from God the Father, through his Son, by his Spirit, into his church. Therefore, his church, if they are to more fully experience these qualities, they must understand that there are some doctrinal and behavioral aspects of Christianity that are essential for that church to remain Christian. For the church to be Christian, for, for God's household uh, to be God's household, it must, in the words of Ephesians 2.20, it must be built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. That is why ever since our Lord uh, ascended to the right hand of the Father and sent his spirit and the church began in, in, in a very magnanimous way on what we call the day of Pentecost uh, that, that as God was creating a church there in Jerusalem uh, that one of the first things that we see noted about that church is that those who were baptized they devoted themselves we're told in Acts 2.42 they devoted themselves and the first thing listed what they devoted themselves to were the, was the apostles 
doctrines. The church is built upon the foundation of the teachings of the apostles. The early church committed themselves to to knowing and to embracing the doctrines of the apostles. The writer of Jude, in Jude verse 3, says, Contend for the faith. The the word faith there is not the act of believing, but, but that which is believed, the content of that faith. Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. I say all that to say that it's important that what a church believes is beliefs that are old, older than some of you guys even, and that's pretty old. I'm talking apostolic old. I understand that you and I learn new things from God's word, and yet, and yet, and yet what we believe should not be a new thing. It may be new to us, because we've been not paying attention or whatever, but, but it must not be new. It must be old. It, it must be apostolic. It, it must be so that if Paul or John or, or Peter or any of the apostles were here with us this morning, uh, they, they wouldn't hear what's being said from this pulpit, and they, would, they wouldn't say to themselves, I never heard that before. That's new to me. You see, as even in the early church, there were those that were, that were fascinated by newfangled doctrines and beliefs and ways of living. And, 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 and the problem with that is, is the Father through the Son by the Spirit doesn't release his grace and mercy and peace through those who entertain newfangled false doctrines and ways of living. It's the height of hubris to think that just because I've been to seminary, I, I, and Apostle Paul never went to seminary, that, that, I could, that I could learn something and know something that he never knew, that now that I'm a sophisticated 21st century guy, that, that we need to let go of those old, rusty, archaic doctrines uh, that those backwoods apostle boys uh, taught, and we need to get with it and uh, make Christianity relevant to this modern age. To which I would say the problem is never. The problem is never. The problem is never. How do we make God relevant to this present age? The issue is how far we have fallen, where we are totally irrelevant to the truths and the realities of God. So Paul's willing to put up a fuss about what one believes and how one behaves or lives. He's willing to put up a fuss with that, not just because he woke up on the wrong side of the bed and is in a crabby mood and had a bad week. He's willing to fight for these things. As he would say in the book of Philippians, he's willing to fight for their joy because what's at stake 
is the grace of God and the mercy of God and the, and the peace of God. For as much as you and I want these things, as much as you and I, even if we don't want these things because we maybe don't have a lick of sense, as much as you and I need these things, these things come to us only in Jesus. And a different Jesus will not provide you these things. Some other rendition of the gospel will not provide you these things. Some other experience of some kind of spirit will not offer you these things. That's what the Apostle Paul would say in another letter in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Listen to what he says in verses 3 and 4 as he writes to the church there. He goes, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ Paul doesn't want them to be led astray. Now, there's lots of reasons for that, but, but in this context, he doesn't want them to be led astray because, they're, because, they're, they're, because outside of Jesus, there is no other way to experience the grace and the mercy and the peace that we need. He, he, he chides them, in fact. He goes on back to 2 Corinthians. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. You entertain that junk. See, to experience the grace and the mercy and the peace that you and I have been built to need. You see, our highest needs are not some sort of psychological self-actualization. Our highest needs are really qualities like grace and mercy and peace. But those are embedded in Jesus. And therefore, a sincere and pure devotion to Jesus. The Jesus that the Bible talks about. The gospel that the Bible explains. The spirit that the Bible recognizes. Some other Jesus, some other gospel, and some other spirit will not be true and therefore cannot truly provide to us the grace and the mercy and the peace. Or to put it this way, a rhetorical question I'll pose at you, so don't raise your hands. How many of you want some grace and mercy and peace? I do, how do I get them? Wrong question, wrong question. See, it's a good thing you didn't raise your hand. I would have slapped you down. I'm mean like that. 
The issue is not how do I get me some grace and mercy and peace. Since they're only found in Christ, the issue is how do I receive Christ? That begs the question then, who is this Christ? What's so special about him? Who left him in charge? What has he done that he alone is the benefactor of grace and mercy and peace? He alone is the God-man. He alone lived a perfect life. He alone was the only acceptable sacrifice for a holy God on behalf of sinners. He alone has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of all who would believe subsequent to that. He alone is at the Father's right hand, and he alone will culminate history when he is pleased to. He alone controls all things. And without him, we will not have grace. Without him, we will be overtaken and destroyed by our sin. Without Jesus, we will not have mercy. And without the mercy that Jesus provides, we will be overwhelmed and defeated in our sufferings. And without Jesus, we will not know peace. And without the peace that Jesus provides, we will be outmatched, overmatched, and depleted in our sorrows. It's a new year. And there's one resolution. The one resolution that contributes to anything else that you've got going on. Turn to Jesus. Resolve to trust in and to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. For in Jesus there is every ounce of mercy, every shred of grace, and every load of peace that you need this year and every other year. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, that we would look to him this morning, perhaps perhaps for the very first time, but perhaps this morning is an occasion for us to reconfigure and to reevaluate and to renew and to resolve afresh our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, help us, even as we sing this beautiful old hymn, Father, may what we sing about resonate as a reality in our hearts and souls, that Christ would be our vision. For we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's